good morning. It's my privilege to be with you, and I'm so excited to open up God's Word with you and learn from His living Word, His truth. I do invite you this morning to open up your Bibles to John chapter 6, John's Gospel, and that sixth chapter is where we will be this morning, so please open your Bibles with me to that passage. John chapter 6, our text this morning will be verses 16 through 21. It's my privilege to join you this morning and be with you. As Pastor Lamb said, I am Nick White, and I am someone who's really from the northeast part of this country, so you are kind to be hospitable to me. I know sometimes there's a little bit of a rivalry there for some reason, and so I appreciate your Christian love and charity towards us and our family And we so much appreciate you having us in today. Getting to meet you and be with you has been a a pleasure for us. And just getting to meet your pastor has been a joy for me personally. And I just want to say, if you're a member here or if you're not a member yet, um, just how blessed you are to have this church and this pastor and his family serving you. Um, You may not know this, and maybe you do, but this kind of church is not a common thing. What do I mean by that? There are not that many churches that make it a priority to be a biblical church. There are a lot of churches out in this world today that are seeking to uh, bring in the world and try to cater to the world in order to reach the world, but once they reach them and bring them in, there's really nothing to reach them with. And you are so blessed to have the pastor you do And I'll just say this, wherever you live, here in this region, every person on your street should know about this church. Invite them to this church, bring them to this church, because they will hear the gospel preached in this church. And so I'm blessed by what the Lord is doing here, and I am encouraged. And I would just ask that you pray for our family. We are in a time of transition right now. We are praying for the Lord's will as to where he would have us serve next as far as pastoring a church. So your prayers are greatly appreciated. John chapter 6 and verse number 16, this is a great passage of scripture It says, now when evening came, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, went down to the sea, got into the boat, went over the sea towards Capernaum, and it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose, because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat And they were afraid, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Bow with me in prayer. Father, I come to you now as your messenger, as your herald of the truth. And Lord, I am sure that there will be no good that comes from it unless your Holy Spirit does that work through your word in the hearts of those who are here today. Father, I pray that the word would come with power, for this is the living word of God. It is inerrant, it is inspired, and Lord, it is invincible. We trust your word to do its saving work. We trust your word to do the work of transforming us who are saved more so into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We love him, we adore him, we worship him, and we trust him to do this work this morning. 
We thank you for this privilege we have to gather together as your body, as your church, that you have purchased with your blood. We honor you and we pray that as we listen to your word, we would give it the honor that it is due. We ask all of these things in the name of Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. Just to give some context this morning, we find ourselves in really at this stage of Jesus' life and ministry in a sequence of incredible events that take place during Jesus' earthly life. Jesus at this time performs just one miracle after another. And what he's doing in this is he is proving his deity, he is proving his messiahship, he is proving that this is the one who God has promised, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And like a hammer that sinks a nail into the wood, each miracle serves almost as a strike that drives that nail deeper, that Jesus is the Christ, he is the begotten son of God, he is the word that has made flesh, and God who has become man. And in John 6, it begins with the incredible miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, which If you count women and children, you probably know that number could be factored up to as many as 15,000. I've even heard up to 20,000 people. This is a miracle that was done on unparalleled scale, which is why it's the only miracle except for the resurrection that is recorded in all four Gospels. What follows this famed miracle, though, is actually another widely known miracle. It doesn't just dip into obscurity or into a lesser-known miracle. In fact, uh, we are introduced to a very widely known miracle, one that people who don't even go to church are well aware of, and that is Jesus walking on the water. And so we go from glory to glory in this phase of Jesus' earthly life. The further we venture along with Jesus in his life, it's as if we are brought deeper into the sheer wonder of who he is. And this morning, I have set aside this text, and I trust the Lord to enrich our faith with this account. Within this series of events that we will see in this passage, along with Matthew and Mark's account, there are truths that bring encouragement to every follower of Christ in time of trouble. I want to preface this message with an important note. The events that take place in today's text are recorded for us in a literal fashion. Why is that important? Well, because so often, many preachers, you might have heard, take texts like this and they allegorize it, which means that they kind of make it say what they want. Uh, For example, I've heard people say, uh, the waves in this storm that we're about to see are the waves of the doubts from your haters. Uh, Or maybe the waves in this passage are waves of sin, And so we must keep our eyes on Jesus or we will sink in sin. And that is true in and of itself, but that is not what the text is saying. Others might have taken liberties with the text to say the boat is the world. And and Peter separated himself from the world by stepping out of the boat. And you need to step out of the boat in faith and get out of the world and be with Jesus. Well, the problem with that is when you realize that it was Jesus who sent them into the boat in the first place. And the, the boat full of Jesus' disciples, that's the world. And then what do we do with the fact that Jesus brought Peter back with him into the boat? So get out of the world and then come back in after a while. 
So that doesn't really work. We have to be careful when we study God's word to study it for what it actually says. As a preacher of the word of God, it is my job to give you the plain meaning of the text and show you where Christ is, who God is, and from that, who we are and what we need. God has not given the reader of his book editorial liberty. And so, God makes it clear that this is a literal account. And so that is the way we'll deal with it today. But on the other hand, just because this is a literal narrative doesn't mean that there is nothing for us here except for cold historical facts. Because all scripture is profitable, right? And while this story may not be allegorical, it is relevant. It is relevant. And the experience of the disciples in this storm is reflective of experiences we have in trials. There are implications here for every disciple of Christ who will experience trials. So anyone who will be a student of Scripture, you have to know how to walk that fine line. You and I may never have the experience that these disciples had of rowing through a storm. We do find ourselves as disciples of Christ in great trials where we can be brought to to places of great despair. So this text provides truths for every believer who will endure trials. And, And the truth is, guys, that every disciple of Christ will, no doubt, find themselves at one point or another in the heat of a trial. Because trials, my friends, are necessary graces in the Christian life. I want you to just look at Romans 5 briefly before we dive into this text by way of introduction. I want us to see trials in the right light this morning. Romans chapter 5, speaking about our justification, deals with some of this. In the first five verses, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom Also, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But it doesn't stop there. We don't only rejoice in that. Notice, not only that, but we also glory in what? Tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance character and character hope now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us so tribulations and trials actually bring out the sweetest of spiritual rewards it brings out perseverance or endurance and that brings out character or proof which is proven faith that from our experience and from our 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 endurance we find that our faith is actually real, that the faith that God has given us is real saving faith, and from that we get hope, which is assurance, assurance of our standing with God, assurance of the gift of faith and repentance that God has given to us, and assurance that God will keep his word, and he will keep us, and that assurance stands because God loves us. So almost you have to think of it this way. Trials like the pains of exercise, it's not the pain of exercise that we benefit from as much as what the pains of exercise bring that we benefit from. 
And it's not that we sadistically just enjoy the pain of suffering and trials. But we treasure the benefits that trials bring in our lives. James 1, 2 through 4 also speaks of the benefits of trials. It says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Rejoice, really? Seriously, James, really? Rejoice in trials. Why? Well, trials work patience, perseverance, endurance, and that trials in working that patience actually perfects us or matures us. And this is why Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 29 that it's not only being given us to believe, but to suffer for his sake. We all love the fact that the Lord has sovereignly given us the gift of faith to trust in his son for our salvation. We rejoice in that. But in that same verse, Paul likens the gift, that's what it is, of suffering. J.C. Ryle said this, winter as well as summer, clouds as well as sunshine are all necessary to bring the fruit of the Spirit to ripeness and maturity. So we must not think of Christ appointing trials for us as an act of cruelty, my friends, for it is nothing but an act of kindness. Trials are great greenhouses for our growth. Trials refine us. They bend us without breaking us. Trials are always for our good and His glory. And it is only the purest of gold that knows the fiercest of refining fires. So every disciple of Christ must learn that one of our Lord's top priorities is the godliness of his people. And godliness often comes, my friends, at the expense of our ease and at the expense of our comfort. Trials are graces that prove his love for us. So some of the most profound lessons that God will ever teach you are lessons that are taught in the classroom of crisis. This is what Christ does for his disciples in the text before us. John's simple account of this series of events will serve as our home base this morning, but we will rally in the perspectives of Matthew and Mark as well. There are three facets of trials that John 6 shows us, and the first is found in number one, the sending into the storm. The sending into the storm. We get our bearings of the situation here in verses 16 and 17 of John 6. So if you turn back to John 6, our text this morning, verses 16 through 17, this is really where we get an understanding of what's going on. You have to know that Jesus just feeding the 5,000, the crowd makes an attempt to crown Jesus as their king. Now, not the king that we see in Scripture, uh, not the king that is on Jesus' terms, but a, a king that is on their terms. And Jesus sends the crowd away, and he withdraws from that scene because Christ has no interest in being the sovereign of our own imaginations. So he withdraws, and he withdraws to pray. That's what Mark 6 tells us. Well, then the scene shifts to the twelve to the 12 disciples. And verse 16, it says, Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, the Sea of Galilee. 
Now the plan was for the disciples to head up to Bethsaida and from there head to the other side to the sea toward Capernaum where the plains of Gennesaret were. In verse 17, the first part says this. They got into the, into the boat and went over the sea toward Capernaum. That's what leads them into the storm. Now, we have to ask this question. Why did they get into this boat? Why did they even embark on this journey? Was it an act of disobedience to, to voyage to the other side? Were they disregarding Christ's commands by going to the other side? Maybe uh, that's why they encountered this horrific storm. It was to punish their obstinance. Or maybe it was an aimless act that caused them to cross the sea. Maybe they thought, well, we don't really know what else to do, so let's just cross back towards Capernaum. And that would make this series of events a, a fitting reprimand. Well, Matthew's gospel actually tells us why they took this journey. In Matthew 14, 22, it says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. So it was Christ that sent them into the boat. Or we could say it was Christ that sent them into the storm. So when the disciples found themselves in the storm, we know, hear me my friends, that it wasn't a punishment for their wrongdoing. In fact, it was their obedience that brought them into this storm. There's a great insight here. And that is this. A life of obedience to Christ does not rid the Christian life of trials. Following Christ oftentimes means rowing into a storm. Psalm 23, we read, He leads me down the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Guess where those paths sometimes lead? The valley of the shadow of death. So obedience may bring reward, and it does, sometimes earthly, oftentimes spiritual. But obedience does not guarantee a life free of trouble. And if it did, can I be honest, we would miss out on a great deal of good. We could even go as far as saying that while difficult, trials in and of themselves are a kind of spiritual reward for obedience. Because they produce so much good. Another needful insight is that trials, hear what I say, never come by accident. They always come by divine appointment. The storm that these disciples are going to find in, you understand it wasn't a fluke. It, it was ordained by God. I want you to see something. So keep your finger here in John 6 and turn to Psalm 107. Psalm 107. I want you to see some verses here. Verse 23, those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep, for, notice, he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at a wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. 
then they are glad because they are quiet, so he guides them to their desired haven. If you turn even further in Psalms to Psalm 135, we see this echoed. Psalm 135 and verse number seven. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. The waves are not only obedient to our Lord when they are calmed. They are just as obedient when they are raging. We so often like to think of God's deliverance from trials, and that's a good thing to enjoy. But how often do we actually ponder God's design of our trials? In Psalm 44, 7, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. And perhaps this is why we fail to be thankful for our trials. How often do we bless him when he brings us through the storm? Yet we curse the waves that he stirred for our good and his glory. And Spurgeon famously said that I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. So we must think of our trials in this framework that Christ leads us into our trials for our good, that every factor of our trial is divinely orchestrated by the kind hand of God, that trials are a providence to be thankful for. So there was first the sending into the storm. Secondly, I want you to notice the severity of the storm. The severity of the storm. Verse 18, then the sea arose. That's, it, it means it grew tempestuous because a great wind was blowing. Now you have to understand, geographically speaking, the Sea of Galilee was 700 feet below sea level and is surrounded by mountains reaching upwards to 3,000 feet above sea level. And even today, air will come crashing over those mountains into that sea. And the result of this, it's been said, is it makes the Sea of Galilee look like a boiling cauldron like a boiling pot, pot of water. So in a moment's instance, that sea can turn into a raging sea. And the intensity of the storm is actually highlighted in the first part of verse 19. It says, when they had rowed about three or four miles. From, from what's seen here, that doesn't seem half bad. Well, they are able to row three or four miles through a, a storm. That's, that's not bad at all. But then we read Matthew and Mark's account, and three or four miles becomes a lot less impressive because now it's the fourth watch, which is 3 a.m. to 6, 6 in the morning. So they've been rowing basically all night. And they've only made about three or four miles of progress. Mark also tells us that they were toiling and rowing. Mind you, out of these 12 men, seven of them at least were fishermen by trade who fished these very waters in the Sea of Galilee. They would have been very experienced in sailing this sea. But even these experienced fishermen could do nothing to maneuver this storm. They have toiled in rowing for hours. They've hardly made any progress. And we can only imagine the sense of helplessness that they felt in the moment. And here we see, my friends, don't miss this, in high definition, one of the most underappreciated blessings of trials. And that is when trials make us realize just how insufficient we are. 
Just how helpless we are by ourselves. Just how needy we are for grace. Just how needy we are for God. My friends, it is a great grace to be brought to the end of yourself. It is a great grace to be brought to the end of yourself, to be made aware of your neediness. And if all that God ever used trials for was to get us to this place, it would be well worth every storm. Because it is this place of desperation that drives us to a dependence on God. You know, ease does little. Comfort does little to keep us relying on grace. You know that, right? But trials purge us from that self-sufficient pride. And our weakness better acquaints us with Christ's strength. I think of 2 Corinthians 12. Paul speaks of the thorn in the flesh. I begat the Lord three times to remove this thorn. What was Christ's answer? Paul, my grace is sufficient. What was Paul's response? Most gladly, therefore. Will I rather glory in, um, in my infirmities? Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So I take pleasure in all of these things. Because when I'm weak, then is he what? Strong. Hear what I say, my friends. Anything, anything that drives us to the throne of grace is a good thing. Even the severest of storms, even the most difficult of trials. These are lessons we learn in the classroom of crisis. They are lessons these disciples are learning. There was first ascending into the storm, then there's the severity of the storm, and we come to our climax of our text with third, the sovereign over the storm. The sovereign over the storm. Look at the last part of, or the, the latter part of uh, verse 19 in John 6. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus. By the way, just a footnote, we don't have the time to flesh this out, but you go to Mark and you actually see that Jesus saw them first, that he was watching them from the mount while he was praying. Just a note for you, Christ sees us. Uh, we may not see him in all the things we do, but Christ always keeps a watchful eye on his sheep. He never loses his sheep because he's the good shepherd. But they saw Jesus, notice, walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. Please, my friends, forget the flannel grams in Sunday school. Just for a moment, forget the coloring books. Just for a moment, forget the trite pictures and, and the routine that you, we, come, we sometimes come to these passages and because they are so familiar, we lose reverence with them. But I want you to just for one moment here, picture this awesome sight. Towering waves are falling, one right after another. Darkness is shrouding everything. Wind is ripping through the Sea of Galilee. But here comes the King of Kings. And he walks on a raging sea as if it were a sheet of granite. And the winds don't throw him off balance. Christ walks with poise and with power. Is it any wonder that the one who can part a sea can also walk on it? Behold your God who walks on waves. Cannot the one who has conquered our sin also conquer our despondency and our desperation and our fears? 
This is our God here. This is our king, and this is our redeemer, and he walks on waves. He is the sovereign over the seas and the sovereign of every storm and the sovereign of your trial. He's not worried about the times. He's not losing track of his sheep. He's not in a state of panic. Jude 24, it is him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. But these disciples don't have a clue what they're looking at. Which is why John notes in the last part of this verse, and they were afraid. We know from Matthew and Mark that they were afraid when they saw Jesus walking on water because they thought they were looking at a ghost. Now you and I, from our ivory towers, look at this and say, well, why didn't you know this was Jesus? I mean, Jesus just fed the 5,000. Really, the last thing on your mind was that this could be Jesus? Just, just put yourself in their shoes for a moment. They are exhausted from rowing against the wind for hours they can hardly see, remember, it's night, and now they see a man walking on the waves, you'd be delirious too. But my friends, Jesus does for these fearful disciples what he so often does for us through his word. He doesn't cater to our fears, and he doesn't downplay our fears. He calms them. Verse 20. But he said unto them, he says unto them the three greatest words you and I could ever hear in troubled times. Notice, what's he say? It is I. It is I. There is nothing sweeter to the ear of a fearful sheep than the voice of the good shepherd. And he says, it is I. Be not afraid. I want you to notice Jesus does not seek to remove their fear by settling the storm this time. Jesus seeks to remove their fear. How? By pointing to him, himself. Be still and know what? That I am God. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Jesus doesn't pull out a whiteboard and disclose step by step every rhyme and reason why he sent these disciples into the storm. That's not how he eliminates fear. No, he fixes their eyes on himself. My friends, was this not the case for Job? Do you remember the life of Job? And do you remember the turning point in the life of Job after losing his family, his cattle, his house, after listening to the droning lectures from his friends about how he lost everything because of some undiscovered sin? What was it that brought Job out of his despair? God didn't show Job a play-by-play -play of heaven's throne room where Satan challenged God and God mentioned Job and caused all of this trouble to come. In fact, you read it, 
from the beginning to the end, Job actually never knew exactly why he suffered so much loss. So what was it that proved to be the turning point? It was when God answered Job in a whirlwind and he reminded Job just who the God he served is. That the God is the God who created heaven and earth. That the God he served is a God who put the boundaries on the sea. That he put the earth on its axis that he commands day and night, that he set the place of every star that is in the sky, that he sends rain to the dry ground, and he sends food to the raven, that he gives life to every living creature. God owes no one anything, but all things are owed to him. And Job responds, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand hear me my friends God keeps his children even through unthinkable trials by keeping his children's eyes on him it's not about why and it's not about what it's who it's who we don't need to my friends just think with me here does your great shepherd love you yes does he not give you all that you need so if he knew we really needed to know the rhyme and reason behind every suffering we face, would he not give it to us freely? So the only reason why he would withhold it from us is because it would actually be bad for us. And in his kindness, rather than directing your eyes on your suffering, he directs your eyes to himself. And that is what Christ does for his disciples in this violent storm. And to display that it was him, to, to validate that it was him, what follows is a whole sequence of miracles. When you factor in Matthew and Mark and John's account, you see first Jesus is walking on water, but second, he makes Peter to walk on the sea with him. Third, he brings the storm to a screeching halt. And then fourth, you'll see this in verse 21. You can read it with me. Then they willingly received him in the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. That's a miracle right there. You know why? In a moment, they go from the middle of the sea to the shore where they were headed. Like that. Four miracles, count them, rapid fire. All of this is proving who he is, that he is who he says he is. And this is to one specific aim. And it's found, we'll close with this, in Matthew 14. So let's go to Matthew's account of this exact occurrence. Matthew 14. And I want you to see the aim that Christ has in mind, not only for this trial for the disciples, but every trial we face. Matthew 14, verse 33. And those who were in the boat, this is after Jesus had calmed the storm, had walked on the waves, brought Peter back with him in the boat, brought them to the shore. Those who were, with, those who were in the boat came and worshipped him. Notice what they said, saying, truly, you are the son of God. My friends, the grand purpose of every trial is so simple yet so profound. And that is to make Christ's disciples better worshippers. That is to make you a better worshiper. Amen. 
Is not worship the ultimate aim of every disciple? To worship Christ, disciples of Christ. It's the aim of every disciple of Christ to worship God, bring glory to God, exalt God all of their days, and this is the answer to every trial that we face. It's to see the sovereign one who is over our trials, to see his glory, to become more acquainted with his nature, to know him more, to be drawn closer to his side, and this galvanizes our faith. This is what enables us to endure. This is the source of our hope. This is the stronghold of our assurance, and from that we better worship him because we know more of who he is. It is to see the glorious Christ shining through the storm, drowning out the noise of the waves with his comforting voice and sealing our safety with his presence. So do you see, do you see how trials are a kindness of Christ? I dare not assume every reason why trials come our way. I could never pretend as if I know the eternal mind of God. But this I do know. If you're in Christ, trials are God-appointed for God-appointed purposes. And they are good purposes because we have a good God. You and I must never become self-sufficient. We must remember that Christ never loses sight of us. We must realize that our need is not to be delivered from the trial, but to be drawn closer to the side of the Lord over the trial and to see him in his word and worship him. Perhaps you are here today and you do not know the sovereign Christ. The supreme need of your life, my friend, is not financial, it's not material, your greatest need is Christ. You must know this. God created you, created all of us, created all things. He is the creator of all things, the universe. God has given you life. God has given me life. And he has made us in his image for the purpose of reflecting his nature and glorifying his name. But we as man have shattered the image through Adam's sin, the first man. And because of Adam's fall, we are all born in sin. We love sin, we run to sin, we treasure sin, we are dead in our trespasses in sin. And rather than glorify God, we actually defy him in our lives. We take the very life that God has given to us and we spend it for ourselves and we spend it for our glory, and we spurn the face of his new morning mercies every day. We have no righteousness of our own. We have broken God's law. We lie, we profane his name, we commit adultery. And all we have warranted for ourselves is the eternal wrath of God. And that means being consigned to a place called hell, forever, a place of fire and judgment. That is who we are, and that is our dilemma on our own. But God, who is rich in mercy, when we have not deserved hope, he has given hope. And that hope cannot be found anywhere but in Christ alone, as we sang this morning. 
And so Christ, who is God in the flesh and the Son of God, was born of a virgin without a sinful nature. He never sinned, and he actually fulfilled and kept every jot and tittle of the law. And he did this so that he might die in the place of his people. And because the payment of sin is always death, Christ could only purchase his people's salvation by dying in the place of sinners. So Christ laid down his life on Calvary's cross. And the one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God through him to prove that he is God and that he is the Christ and the Savior, and to prove that his death on the cross was sufficient to pay for our sins. He rose again on the third day in victory over sin and death. And even right now, he is at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for his own. And he will come back one day to judge the quick and the dead, and he will judge the world in righteousness. And so now the command is for you to repent and believe this gospel, to turn from your sin and to renounce this world and to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. That is not just an invitation, my friends. That is a command. And to defy God and reject that command is to say to God, you reject all of the hope that he is offering to you. But today is the day of salvation. And if you will turn from your sin and turn to Christ, even though you might have sinned against him a minute ago, Christ is rich in mercy and where sin did abound. Grace did much more abound, and those who come to him, he will in no wise cast you out. Come to Christ today. Have you been born again? Have your eyes been opened to this? You must be born again. You need God to take your heart of stone out and replace it with a heart of flesh that understands the gospel, understands his truth, that longs to be right with God through Christ. Turn to him today, and you may know the sovereign over the storm. But that's your greatest need. We have a great Christ, my friends. Would we lift our eyes to him as we sang? Turn our eyes upon Jesus. That's the answer. Well, it's too simple. Get over it. That's what the word says. Turn to Christ and trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we have heard from your word, and I pray that everything that was said is faithful to the text that we have here. Lord, we now pray for all the people who are here, those who are in Christ, I pray that you would comfort them with these words, that they would see the Son who bled and died for them is good and is faithful to preserve us and to keep us through the worst of trials. I pray for those who are not in Christ today that you would give them the gift of faith and repentance, that you would open their eyes to the cross of Christ, that you would draw them to your side, that they would believe on you, not trusting in any works they can do, but in, in faith they believe in you and trust you alone to save them because you've done the work. We pray all of these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.